Welcome to the Not Work Storytelling Podcast. This is the show where we untangle our myths and reweave our stories, one ancient tale at a time. I'm your host, Marisa Gowdy. I'm a word witch, a writing coach, a story healer, and the author of The Sovereignty Knot, a woman's way to freedom, power, love, and magic. Mythology and folklore are medicine for the modern soul. Let's hear today's story and explore why it still matters. Episode 6, The Birth of a Heroine. My guest in this episode is Barb Buckner Suarez. Barb is a health educator specializing in pregnancy, birth, and parenting. She's taught thousands of couples for over 20 years about the benefits of embracing the vulnerability that comes with being a parent. Barb is a Lamaze Certified Childbirth Educator, a fellow in the Academy of Certified Childbirth Educators, and a Certified Becoming Us Facilitator. She's also a professed brain nerd and holds a master's level certificate in interpersonal neurobiology. Barb just launched her new podcast, Birth Happens. It's yet another way for her to support expecting and new families in the most important work they will ever do, raising the next generation. I am so excited to have Barb Suarez with me today. We are going to have an amazing conversation around birthing and motherhood and all these different levels of experience that are expressed in this particular story. But as is our way on the Network Storytelling Podcast, we let the story speak for itself first. So I'm going to begin with the tale of Macha, which is originally found in the ancient Irish manuscript, the Metrical Dinchanicus. And I have Remythologized my own version for the show and for the purposes of the amazing conversation I know it's going to open up for us. So let's begin here. Fado, Fado, in Aaron. It was an early winter day in the northern part of Ireland, gray with the darkening of the season. A small yet sturdy fort was nestled into the side of a distant hill, a striking silhouette against the steel of the sky. A fence of sharpened timbers was set on the earthy green ring that protected all who dwelled within. There was a wisp of smoke coming from the heart of the settlement, but it was clearly a weak blaze for a place of this size. No children called to one another. No mother scolded or praised or cajoled. The cattle and goats muttered to one another, but even their voices seemed muted. The cows who gave this family their wealth were lowing from the fields, but their sounds were the loneliest in the world. A soft but brilliant light appeared from the western valley below. If there was anyone watching, and indeed one man was, it would soon be clear that the light shone from a lone figure. A tall woman with sunshine ginger hair approached, her stride certain, her face serene. She was dressed as finely as any noblewoman, but you couldn't judge her origins from her voice, as most folks would. She entered the enclosure without a word. The man who had watched her arrival was speechless himself. Folk did not simply walk into the home, the wrath, of a well-enough-off man like Cruin McOdman, and make oneself at home. They surely did not sit at the prime seat beside the hearth and stoke the fire. They certainly did not pull down the kneading trough and begin to shape perfect new loaves. And they definitely did not make their way to the pens where the new mother cows were kept and begin to fill pail after pail with milk. 
But this woman did all of this. She did so silently and without getting a trace of ash, a grain of flour, or a splash of mud upon her gown. All the while, she had a smile on her face, like any lady secure in the comfort and wealth of her fine home might have. When the fire was blazing, the bread rising, the cows contented, and the milk had filled the larder, the woman finally spoke. She did not address the tall, bearded man who wore his own fine robes, and would have spoken in his own rich voice if he could have found the words that would wrap around his own bewilderment. Instead, the lady spoke to the servants, making her requests for dinner and offering advice on how to sear the mutton to her liking. She took the second seat by the fire this time, and beckoned the man of the house to sit beside her. He did, and their continued silence must have echoed loudly in a home that had just begun to awake with new life. At the end of the finest meal that any could remember, all the members of the household, including the man's four sons, who didn't know what to say to or about this new woman, retired to bed. The lady was the last to rise. She took the duty of smoring the fire for the night, and did it well so that there would be sweet, bright coals to light the next day's blaze. At last, she followed the man to his sleeping couch. She lay her hand upon his hip, and they said nothing more, though neither got a wink of sleep that night. When the new day dawned, full of that thin gold that shines despite the cold distance of the sun, the woman and the man wrapped themselves in the warmest furs, saddled the two strongest horses in the stable, and rode to stand upon the next mountain so they could well see Cruin Magnovnon's lands and holdings. The land was vast, but the green of the grass looked weary and the very stones looked weak. The cows were great enough in numbers, but their ribs showed too clearly through their matted coats. She turned to him. It is Macha, I am called. It was to your door, I was called. It is you, I call, to my side. I will stand with you and lie with you and help you restore these lands and herds that once were so rich and abundant. With that, she took off and ran thrice around the boundaries of the land, following the direction of the sun, and so set the spell into motion. Fruin was a widower. He was the father of four fine motherless sons. He was lord of a great stretch of land, and had once boasted the greatest herds from this range of mountains to the next. His loneliness had brought the hush upon their prosperity. His grief had opened the door to this mystery woman. Though he still mourned his wife with a devotion that was pure and true, he would have taken Macha in with open arms, even if she hadn't shown her skill as lady of the house, even if she hadn't the swiftness of the swiftest horses, even if she hadn't promised to restore his lands and wealth. Macha was confident enough of her end of the bargain, too. Though there wasn't much to look at, Macha knew that anything could be cured with enough love and time. Passion, unpushed, could grow in the darkest corners. She had her own reasons for making this trek and making this offer, and she was more than up to the task of becoming wife to a man whose life sorely wanted improvement. And so they settled in together and thrived in every way. The herds multiplied, the bread was soft and unmarred by the grinding stones that might break a tooth, the sons of Cruin accepted the love of a woman who came to be a second mother to them. After a handful of months amongst this new company, Macha's own belly began to grow, and the household eagerly awaited a child from this new sacred union. Alas, 
As happy as Corinne was, he was not a man easily satisfied, even when his cup nearly overflowed with happiness. He needed just a little bit more. He needed to walk amongst his peers and his betters and the lowly rabble who would envy him his good fortune. He decided to go to King Conqueror's great Samhain fair. He declared he had to be there to play his part as they lit the great festival fire in celebration of the final harvest. It was a way of giving thanks to the gods and their rightful king, after all. At least, that's what he said. Macha didn't mind some time alone. She was like any woman close to her time who wants to balance a sweet cup of tea upon her great rising belly and imagine the sweetness of a baby's breath and the soft down of the little one's hair. Her only concern was that her open-hearted husband, who surely had a powerful voice when he was not dumbstruck by the appearance of a great and noble lady taking over the affairs of his hearth, might break the vow he'd made to her. On that first dawn together, when they looked down upon the great swells and dips of the land, and perhaps noticed the way the land itself looked like a mother goddess, ready to nourish her people and beasts, grains and flowers, Macha had asked for a single promise from her new mate. She did not ask for a full stomach or jewels or babies or even fidelity. She got all that easily enough. No, she asked that Cruin never tell a soul outside of their wrath of her arrival or existence. He swore he would never breathe a word of his new fine wife. The prospect of having her all to himself was even more attractive than boasting of her hair, her lips, her eyes, and her way with the cows. At least, that is how he felt when he had no one to boast to. And so that was an easy promise to keep for nearly a year until he felt called back to celebrate with the king and his court and the rest of the men he knew from all his years in Ulster. Sure, it's only natural to want to honor the great cycle of the year, even in, especially in, the midst of the most remarkable year of your life. Again, gratitude was to be shared, even if you couldn't say just what or who made you so grateful. Maha had grown to trust Cruin as a man of his word. Granted, she'd never seen him in the company of men besides his own boys and servants. She kissed him farewell and expected to see him back, perhaps with a few trinkets from the fair, in three days' time. Cruin enjoyed himself immensely amidst all those tents and prize cattle, with all that music and all that beer. He caught himself about to whisper his gorgeous wife's name. He stopped himself before he demanded the fellows raise a glass to him, about to be a father for the fifth time. He held his tongue well enough until the final morning, when he stood just a few yards from the king himself. Now the king fancied himself a man of the people, but he also needed to prove that he was a cut above the rest. He ran his great black horses across the fairgrounds, laughing as the people and sheep scattered, terrified of those churning hooves and bared teeth. Cruin offered no more respect to the king than was his due, and perhaps a bit less than that. With a slur in his voice that would transform even the handsomest men into a beast, he called out, Hey, Conqueror, my wife can outrun those pieces of horse flesh. She can outrun them and break nary a sweat. Funny how a crowded field full of screaming humans and animals can hush at just the right or just the wrong moment. The king's head snapped round and his eyes locked on the nearly drunken cattle rancher. 
After a whole series of how dare yous and a whole volley of who speaks such to the king, they got down to the question that never should have been asked. Who is this wife of yours and what makes her so fast? And poor Cruin, who really had deserved his year of happiness, at least until he betrayed all in a moment of indiscretion, suddenly collapsed to the ground. It all came out. His wife went by the name of Maha, and she'd come from the west, perhaps from below or beyond the waves, and she shone with the light of the sun in every mood and season. If he mentioned that she was pregnant and due any day, no one listened. Conqueror and his troops had no interest in the poetry or the needs of a woman doing womanish things. They simply wanted to see the creature and watch her race. No citizen of Ulster would make such a boast to the king without offering the royals the satisfaction of seeing the boast disproved, after all. Cruin was held there at the fairgrounds, and the king's guard raced their own horses to the beautiful rath up in the mountains. Macha could hear the pounding of those strange hooves, and she could interpret their story. Betrayal. Doom. Desolation. The end of their perfect year was etched into the earth with every hoofbeat. She and her stepsons were powerless to repel the invaders. The king's men did not bat an eye when they saw the way her pregnant body bloomed before them. They simply forced her upon one of her husband's horses and made her ride hard into the valley, her own mare hemmed in at all sides by their vicious stallions. When they reached the gathering, Maha saw the king silhouetted before the great Samhain fires. They say she was fierce for glory. Some thought it was the bloom of impending motherhood. Others thought it was merely the exertion of the ride. All too few knew that it was the glow of the other world on her cheeks and in her eye. She did not notice Cruin, nor did she look for him. That chapter had closed, and she would barely have recognized him in the crowd, even though his face had been her most beloved for eleven months and more. Maha called out to the king and those assembled around him, Conqueror, have mercy as you would hope any bully, bandit, or king would have upon your own mother. I am about to give birth and cannot race your horses with a belly so heavy with child. The king's ears were deaf to her. His only response was a small, wry smile buried in his own thick beard. And so, Maha loosed her ginger sunbeam hair so it surrounded her head like a penumbra of a setting autumn sun. Her face was set in grim determination. She did not tighten her sandals. She did not clutch her skirts in her hands. She simply ran when the groom set the horses free. Maha ran and ran until the horses seemed to grow small behind her. At the end of the course, her breath was coming fast and hard, but it was not from the exertions of the race. It was the moment of birth. There on the finish line, before King and company and those fierce black horses who finally came round the final bend, Maha delivered not one, but two babes into the thick grass. A girl and a boy, she named them immediately, Fear and Fear. It was impossible to mistake her tone when she offered the meanings of those names. Honor and Truth. At last, the lady had the crowd's attention. Apparently, all one needed to do was display superhuman strength and offer the spectacle of public birth to be heard by the men of Ulster. 
Hear me, Conqueror, the cur who dares test a woman, any woman, especially a woman of the she, in such a way when it is her time to birth forth the next generation of your kind. Your people shall be cursed for nine generations. In the moments of greatest need, the fighting men of Ulster shall be struck down with the pangs of childbirth for nine days and nine nights. And so they would. And so the history of Ireland was reshaped and rewritten according to one woman's word. If you've heard tell of the mighty hero Cúchulainn, or a story they call the Toyn, the saga of the great cattle raid, the greatest of all the Irish stories, you know that this curse came true and turned the tides of war. That curse spoken aloud, Macha, was no more. Some books might say that she died on the spot, utterly spent by the exertion and cruelty. Those who know the ways of the earth and the ways of the gods will tell you that Macha gathered up her children and dissolved into the hills, under the waves, or perhaps right into the sun itself. The men who recorded the old tales bid us to remember Macha's name because of that curse. According to them, her story is notable because she caused the debility of the Ulsterman and deserves her share of the blame for loss in that epic war. But that is a story for another day. We remember Macha for a host of other reasons. We remember the birthing being, the mother, the lover, the woman so strong and brave in the face of injustice and inhumanity. And of course, Macha was something more, too. Those of us who are left now may ask why a fairy woman, a woman of the ancient race of the she, a daughter of the otherworldly gods, the Tuatha de Danann, might have come to this world and picked a man like Cruin as a mate. Who are we to ask of the motives of a goddess who ran her race and rewove the story of her own small corner of the world? Who are we to ask why a divine being joined the human race for a little while and chose to love as she loved? All we know is that there are creatures, mortal and divine, who are part of the making and the unmaking of the world. And it takes the wisdom of all that was and all that will be to name the nature of the mystery. And that is my story of Maha. And now I would love to explore it with you, Barb. Thank that you so sounds much. sounds great. <laughs> I'm really excited to be here. I love... I love your telling of that story. It's beautiful and played out like a, a little mini movie as you were saying it. Thank you. Oh, I love hearing that. Thank you. Had you heard a version of that in the past? Oh, no. No, I had not. So just even the subject matter was fascinating to me. I do love the idea of this superhuman strength. And I would say, you know, based on, on what it is that I do, I would say that the birthing of those babes is a little more superhuman than the running of the race. But, you know, I'm a little biased in that way. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think I, I can say from my own experience as a birthing mama, I certainly felt as if I had done something quite superhuman. I, in fact, remember my uncle visiting right after my first daughter was born and he had just run a marathon. And I told him rather in no uncertain terms, well, that's fine, but I gave birth to this kid in my bathroom upstairs. 
And now I make milk. (laughs) You're like, talk to me about your marathons. I'm just going to say I created this baby. I birthed this baby. Now I'm feeding this baby. So what else you got for me? I love it. I love it. There's a beautiful amount of hubris that I think is possible if you've been fortunate enough to have a really healthy birth that's really empowering. Um, Yes. Yeah. Speak gratefully from that. And I certainly know that's not a universal story, but one I am grateful to be able to tell. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. And I, and I think that it is, I, I, I guess I would say this about that because I feel really strongly about that. No matter how the baby comes to you, really, truly the story, it's like a hero's journey, right? Wh- whatever that story is. And I, I would love people to claim that birth story, whatever it is, even if it goes super, super sideways, because I think it's really important to put yourself back into the protagonist's role. Mm-hmm. of the, yeah there were challenges there were things that happened i rose to the challenges and here i am on the other side telling the story i just feel like because i think sometimes when it doesn't go the way that you're hoping or planning it would go mm-hmm. that i think sometimes people lose sight of that and i i feel like every person who's actually walked that journey is their own hero <laughs> I, i'm amazed yeah. i'm amazed yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. And you and I, before we got, we started recording, we're talking a little bit about how gender works in this story, in birthing mm-hmm. in general. So I want to touch on that in a moment, but I want to kind of offer what I'm about to say through that lens in the sense of I've been doing a lot of work lately on the heroine's journey and how mm-hmm. it's distinct from the hero's journey. Mm-hmm. And I've been working with a book by a woman named Gail Carriger. It's a very much a book written for writers and how they would be using these models of mm-hmm. the hero's journey and the heroine's journey, which isn't quite as clear cut because, you know, Joseph Campbell didn't believe women mm-hmm. needed a version yeah. because, of course, women were the thing that the people were trying to get to. So a woman doesn't need to go on the quest. She's the destination. Yeah. Funny yeah. that women and people mm-hmm. are such different beings. But <laughs> another story for another day that I definitely will keep exploring. Um But to say it, you know, so others have offered this version, uh, different versions of the heroine's journey and what that might look like, how it's Mm -hmm. a response to, how it's different from, how there's similarities to Mm -hmm. the hero's journey. But what I've been finding very interesting in Carriger's version is that so often we're, you know, the hero goes forth and chooses the quest. It may be some, you know, the home life gets shaken up. You know, Luke was really, really upset, yeah. of course, when <laughs> aunt and uncle were, were yeah. killed, but he made a choice to leave. And uh-huh. that often is the hallmark of the hero's journey where sets forth on his own, on his quest, because he must slash because he really wants to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, you know, choice in in birthing and in reproductive rights being incredibly important. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. goddess willing, may all women, ha- may all birthing people and women have a choice at the beginning of their pregnancies. But what you said, sort of that sense of no matter what happens in the course of your birthing story, mm-hmm. which I think is so often the thing that can turn a person giving birth into the heroine is meeting all of those mm-hmm. unexpected elements because from what I understand of birth and my friend's births, there's as much as we know how to do this, the, the, the body has been doing this for longer than we could possibly count. It's almost certainly never going to go according to your plan. And there are more uncertainties to rise against than even no matter how many monsters you put in the labyrinth in front of the hero. Oh, absolutely. And I would say to you that I think, I mean, I've literally worked with thousands of uh, families over the almost 25 years I've been doing this work. And 
I have yet to meet the person who says that their birth went according to plan. And I, I usually counter that with, well, yeah, because birth is way bigger than an eight, eight and a half by 11 piece of paper. Like it shouldn't conform to a plan in my estimation. And I have to say that it's one of the things about birth that I love most is the fact that you don't know what to expect. You don't know how it's going to play out. And it's one of the few experiences that you get to go through that I would consider to be fully human. Like you, you will be tested physically for sure, yep. mentally, emotionally, and I'm going to say spiritually mm-hmm. at some point in that experience. And again, it doesn't matter if it's medicated, unmedicated, vaginal, cesarean, it doesn't really matter. There comes a point where you literally are bare, like mm. the most vulnerable, truly you could ever be in your life because you are open and opening Mm -hmm. in a way that really kind of lifts the veil between where we are here and what came before and what might come after. And it is awesome. I mean, I don't, I don't know how else to, it's really one of the few experiences that I think as humans, we get to go through that's worthy of that word. We we toss that word around a lot. We're like, oh my gosh, this latte is awesome. And it's kind of like, no, I mean, the latte might be delicious. And, you know, the barista might've done a, like a, an amazing Florida de lis on the top, which is great, but it's not an awesome thing. And birth right. is <laughs> awesome. And I think that those pieces of being pushed, uh, I don't even know if I want to say push, being invited. That's what I want to say. Being invited to meet the edge of all of it, mm-hmm. I guess, is what keeps me coming back to it because I, I find it, I would actually give birth again and again and again and again and again. <laughs> and there's a lot of people that just really question my sanity when I say that, but I, <laughs> I love the actual, the experience of being uh, invited to that edge so mm-hmm. much that I, I really am a little bit jealous about the people that I'm working with. You know, my birthing days have been long gone, right. but I am actually a little bit jealous about folks who are actually still in that zone of being able to, to go there and to, mm. to kind of become their own heroine in this journey. I think it's awesome. Yeah. Well, you know, I want to follow some threads in there where mm-hmm. we've also, we've said the phrase, we've said human, we've said superhuman. Mm-hmm. And then I think it's Bio Kamalafe who speaks a lot in his work about the more than human world. And he's often mm-hmm. looking at, you know, looking at the entire ecosystem and understanding mm-hmm. the place of humanity and probably re- in reimagining the place of humanity, decentering us from mm-hmm. the center of all the things. Yeah. Yes. But what I, the reason I thought of, of his work was as you're describing how birth makes us so much more human, I've realized that as I tell these stories, though I've never lived on a cattle farm and I've only known a few cows in passing and friendly, I have this, there must be something ancestral that mm. comes through because I'm always emphasizing women's relationship to the cows. And I think that that's a really, it's a primal thing for me that mm-hmm. says, you know, there is such, you know, people, I mean, there's entire faiths that are based on the sacredness of the cow and the, and mm-hmm. the goddess cow and how she mm-hmm. comes forth as being revered and also misused in our mm-hmm. cultures as a mother, as a creator of babies of milk. And there's that something to me, I because I'm I guess I'm flashing to my own births and remembering the only way I got my first baby into the world was to become an animal. 
I moved mm-hmm. through this entire world of like the mammalian kingdom and had these visions of being all these different animals. And mm-hmm. eventually it was when wow. I became a cow that huh. I finally got my second daughter, my first daughter into the world. Huh. And so it was that moment of like, yes, to being the most human I've ever been mm-hmm. because animal guides decided to walk me there. And I felt mm-hmm. superhuman in that process. So I just, you know, knowing that this idea, the idea behind this show is the Celtic knot and the knot work, I just want to say thank you for helping to weave a very unexpected knot already. And we've only been talking for 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and, you know, you, you kind of speak to the, I'm a big brain nerd and mm. as humans, and it's funny because sometimes it's just weird that you actually are talking about the cow because Sometimes when I'm talking to other expectant pregnant folks, I'll say to them, excuse the reference here, but you know, when a cow is about to have a calf, they just go into the field and they have a calf. Like they don't sit there and think like, my God, this is taking so long. And like, I need somebody official to tell me that I'm actually in labor. And how long ago was it that I ate some cud? Like that's, that's not it. They just go and they do it. And very rarely do they need assistance. Mm -hmm. And the part that really kind of shifts for us is that we have this brain that tells us stories. And I love the brain, Mm -hmm. but it is wholly unuseful. It doesn't have a place in the process of birth. Honestly, we really Mm -hmm. do need to go back into the mammalian, like brainstem Mm -hmm. portion to give birth. We have to shed all of the things that really make us human to become superhuman. I guess that that's, yeah. I'm trying to weave that back in, but that, yeah. that piece of like letting go of the story of how we look or how we sound, or are we doing this quote unquote, the right way? Like all of that needs to be stripped away mm-hmm. so that we can actually just do the thing, which mm-hmm. is regardless of how it happens, unbelievable. Like it's right. unbelievable. It's, you know, 25 years in my kids will sometimes say, don't you ever get bored? And I'm like, how can I get bored about teaching this or talking about this? Our bodies are incredible and we're bringing forth life. Like that's, it's nuts. Sometimes when you actually think about it, you can hear the passion in my voice. I get very excited about this. And I don't know. I think the idea of being able to, (laughs) that's why I'm coming back to that idea of like, wow, it's really amazing that this very pregnant person was able to outrun the horses. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. It's still not as amazing as her bringing forth two babes into the world, in my opinion. Well, I think it's interesting. Like, so let's call us back to the story a little bit. And as we're talking about cows, I also want to honor the horses in all of this Mm -hmm. too, because in some ways they're sort of the antagonist here. You know, she's forced to run against them, Mm -hmm. but it's also that sense of she is of the same Mm. power and strength and magic of the horse mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and of that, again, a very sacred symbol in Celtic culture and that, you know, the cows and horses both have so much magic to them and they have their own deities asi- associated mm. with them. Uh-huh. But there are versions of this story because, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of different folklorists have worked with it, modern storytellers, in which Maha herself comes and has a horsiness to her. Mm-hmm. That, you know, perhaps she never quite shows her legs because what's underneath mm, that those dresses like because yeah. part of this story is the mystery of Maha herself mm-hmm. and why she would 
choose to come to a mortal man, to Cruin in his pain, why she would choose to become a mother to mortal children. You know, mm -hmm. there's a kind of a, a mystery wrapped within he, within this story that I think is is part of the reason why, you know, great myths endure. It's It, it gets us to, to be curious because mm -hmm. we sometimes look to ancient stories, you know, as origin tales to describe to us this is how this happened. The world was created in seven days. Here's mm -hmm, the story. Mm -hmm. But yeah. of course, the reason why that story is compelling is, wait a minute, how did that happen? <laughs> seven days? Wait a minute, what's a day? And you know, the questions that get asked around that. So right. just to say that to honor the the horse magic in this, mm -hmm. to honor the fact that, yes, I do believe the most miraculous piece of this entire thing was her giving birth and wondering also why she chose to give birth because you have to you know she's a birthing person and she's a goddess in this mm -hmm. story mm -hmm. so she had a heck of a lot of agency she had sovereignty here right. what called her to want to have this deeply human experience well because i yes we call it into question and it's, it, it is definitely a mystery but i guess i would go back to what i was saying earlier which i think is that it is the human experience that really is on the border of what is human and what is magical, honestly. Yeah. yeah. And so maybe there's this like marriage of like, yeah, I can do all of these things as a, as a goddess, as sovereignty, I could snap my fingers and create two little babes. Right. Mm -hmm. But maybe I want to actually go through what that experience is as a human. Right. To like push up against that mystery that magic mm -hmm. of like wow this is what it feels like this is what could be experienced in this way yeah. this is what it is to be fully human i guess that that's what i'm right coming back to because that it is the it's the piece to me and it's funny you know sometimes i'll say to folks i've done things like i've gone skydiving and i've climbed a mountain and i've you know been the hood ornament on class four rapids on the Deschutes and, you know, all kinds of like really cool experiences, which on the other side, you're like, oh my God, it was great. <laughs> and none of it be, it doesn't even start to compare to giving birth. In my opinion, those are fun experiences, but they are not lasting, nor are they life-changing. Mm -hmm. And I really feel like the experiences that I've had actually going through my four births each one of them so different from the next, but each one of them tapping into things that I need to know that I didn't know I needed to know. Huh. Right. Yes. I'm just saying that out loud. Like that just kind of came out of me like, oh yeah, I was taught something new with each experience mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and given a, a new understanding of lots of things with each experience. And that's mm. how I've had mysticism and mystical experiences described to me is that you don't know what you don't know, but what you don't know. And you mm -hmm. need to be able to be willing to admit that you don't know what you don't know, mm -hmm. what you don't yes. know. Yeah. And that in and of itself is like, well, there's birth. Mm -hmm. Because of course, you know, I'm thinking tying us back to those ideas of of the uncertainties of birth that mm -hmm. we know mm -hmm. are, are so deeply human. And mm -hmm. that perhaps Maha as goddess could have snapped her fingers and given birth for her the greatest uncertainty, the greatest and most unexpected hurdles came from the disappointment of the people around her and yeah. having been let down by mm. a community that she didn't, she hadn't chosen to be part of the King's community, but she had mm -hmm. chosen a partner. Mm -hmm. And there's certainly a, a deeply bitter sweetness 
um, to this story in the sense of there was love, it was lost. Mm-hmm. They never had shared parenthood or any of those experiences mm-hmm. that come after birth mm-hmm. are not part of this story. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. And that, but isn't that also part of the human existence as well? Mm-hmm. Right. And speaks to the fact that she's like, here, you're going to get it. Like, <laughs> here's the, here's the curse that I'm putting upon y'all. Um, moving forward because man, I'm disappointed, you know, like, I I mean, it, it just feels like that, that would be a a kind of an honest and a, and you don't get my children. I mean, I think that that's a really interesting aspect of it, you know, at the end where they're like, upon saying the curse, she was gone. And so were her children. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. I think that if those were my babes and I was that level of disappointment, I'd be like, you don't get them. They're, they're coming with me because that is kind of like, the a prime objective right of motherhood honestly the some of the brain science that's coming out about really being focused on the emotional and physical welfare of your children and how much residence that takes up in your brain after you've given birth to a, a baby it's it's fascinating actually and it just feels like the right thing for to for her to have done right. i'm out and i'm taking mm-hmm. my kids with me well you know what it's interesting actually that the place where this happened mm-hmm. still bears her name. Evan mm. Macha means the twins of Macha. Mm. So it's that the fact that the people and the earth still remembered, mm. which, you know, yeah. is that sense of, right, she left them behind because they deserved it. And yet they remembered her. And that's part of the reason why we remember this story. Its original source, this Dinshanakas, it's the lore of place names. That's actually mm. part of the reason mm. why we remember this is this connection between the being and the character in the story. But mythology yeah. so often wants us to go deeper to that sense of the biggest idea of birth itself and the even greater idea of the earth itself mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and how there's such a co-creative relationship there. Hmm. That's really cool, actually. Isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> that part of the story when you're like, you know, they, they feel like she still has blame. I'm like, Oh, mm-hmm. I don't know how I feel about that. I think we need to talk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I get a little, um, I kind of want to call that out because that just feels like a bunch of dudes actually wanting to kind of lay claim to the whole situation and, mm-hmm. and point fingers. And, you know, we could talk about that till the cows come home. <laughs> right. And, and we can't, you know, yeah. So as I'm repeating that part of the story, I certainly do not agree with those layering blame, but of course, mm-hmm. we get to remember this story because mm-hmm. of the blame. Yeah. And yeah. these are the strange portals that are mm-hmm. created in patriarchal societies that look at the stuff of kingcraft being much more interesting that warriors and their pains would be the thing of greatest concern, but of course the mightiest irony is is that it was a woman's pains that Mm -hmm. caught that we now remember and are looking at and really analyzing and finding strength and new story in Mm -hmm. and yes we also should still be really pissed off (laughs) (laughs) well i mean you bring up a good point though that that piece of uh, it it could have been lost right it could have just been let's re recount the ways in which Ireland's warriors were defeated. Like, I mean, that exactly that could be it. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it's that there's something deeper to it. That's a really interesting piece. 
Wait, was it Gloria Steinem who said the truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off? <laughs> you know, she was reading her history the day she came up with that one. Oh, that's um, so good. Yeah. So, so I want to loop over to thinking about about gender. Because mm -hmm. I know that in your new podcast, In Birth Happens, mm -hmm. I've been listening to it and enjoying it so much. And because as I think I said in my review of it, it really allows me to go back and heal the parts mm -hmm. of me that birthed, you know, eight, 12 years ago, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and also be thinking about birth in this very present future tense. But I've always I've been very aware that you are speaking about pregnant people rather mm -hmm. than pregnant mothers. And as a writer myself, as someone who is trying to really seek to find inclusivity in my work and also be with the sense of like, right, I was raised up by 70s feminism and mm -hmm. by this immense amount of I am woman, hear me roar that turned <laughs> into girl power, that yeah. turned into you know the feminism that I hope to embody and speak mm -hmm. about that comes from Yes, intersectionality and also owning my own self as white, mm -hmm. cis, hetero, et cetera. Yeah. And I'm more aware of it than ever as I look back to these ancient stories and that they are very gender normative. They are definitely uh -huh. giving us feminine equals woman, masculine uh -huh, equals uh -huh. male, and kings are kings and queens are queens and mothers are right. mothers. And I'll own up to the way in which I'm sort of sitting here going, I feel like my own thinking is very much in process. I'm mm -hmm. looking to these ancient sources. I know myself and my own experience. And I also know we're in a beautifully shifting, changing world in 2022. Mm -hmm. And so I know you've done a lot of work around these ideas of inclusive language. And you mentioned just being in Portland, Oregon mm -hmm. really shifts your way you look at things, but let's go there and just discuss a bit about how gender and sex and mother and pregnant person come into play? I would have to actually really kind of be honest about my journey, even in talking about this, because I think it is a journey when we start in expanding our view and using language that is inclusive. It's bringing people in, it's calling people in as opposed to exclusive. Mm -hmm. And there's a shift I think that needs to happen. And I think it's personal. I think that I would never push somebody into this place of, of coming to a, a different understanding. I think it's something that it's a journey for folks. I will tell you that I have my four children and there have been several friends of my children who have transitioned. Mm -hmm. So there is, I mean, right there is a learning curve. And I will tell you that the first time we went through it, oh, I was, I was mixing up pronouns left and right. I mean, I just, and I had to get my head wrapped around it and it was really hard for me. And for me, right. For me, it was hard for me. So being able to actually kind of recognize my own limitations, I think is a huge piece. Having said that, being able to say like, once you make the shift, I guess, in your brain, like I'm going to use pregnant person, I'm going to use birthing person. I'm going to use um, support person or partner, mm -hmm. the minute you actually are like, no, that I understand the inclusivity of it. Then you really start to see the exclusivity of it in other places. And that's, that's just something that like kind of comes to your brain and it switches. Okay. Because before you make that shift, you might be like, why are they saying it like that? I, I teach some of my classes to folks that are in the Midwest. <laughs> and I've had a few of them say, wow, you 
use birthing person. Like I've never heard that before. And, and it's 2022. Right. So what I'm, I'm getting at is that there's a lot of folks that are like, I'm still kind of thinking about this and, and it's starting to become kind of like on my radar. But having said that, I think it's also super important to really still understand the impact of the culture upon what we're talking about. Yeah. And like episode three of my podcast, Birth Happens, that's coming out next week or whatever, it's titled, What About the Dads? And let me tell you, like from being somebody who's super inclusive, like it's an entire episode that is about the dad slash father experience because our culture really does imbue a tremendous amount of, there is a lot to be said about the words mother and father Mm -hmm. and what they mean and how our culture looks at those two labels. So regardless of even, because I've worked with same-sex couples before, I worked with a a couple where uh, the pregnant person identified as female, but their partner is trans and identifies as male. Mm -hmm. We still talked about the idea of mother and father in those roles because the culture is so strong. So it's really important to, to identify pronouns that fit for you, to identify and feel called into the experience, but to also really understand the impact of culture. Because mother and motherhood, if I were to ask, like, what are the expectations? Not yours. What are the culture's expectations? Let me tell you what comes out. You need to be nurturing. You need to be self-sacrificing. You need to put the needs of your family in front of yourself. Like, these are the things that people can very easily put on the list. What about fatherhood? You need to be the provider. You need to be the disciplinarian. You're stoic and not feeling. I mean, yeah. And those things are, we can push back against them, but we have to actively swim against the current of our culture if those things don't fit. And I should say, we should also actively claim the ones that do. Because I think that sometimes we get in that place where we're like, I'm not going to be like that. I, you know, I, that label boxes me in, take the portions of that identity that fit you and, and claim them for yourself. If you are female identifying birthing person and are naturally a very nurturing person, then that's not a bad thing. Like jump on board with that. Right. But I always push back against that because in my relationship with my husband, my kids knew from a very early age that if they wanted a a snuggle, Mm -hmm. they wanted to sit in somebody's lap and really kind of like get that level of sensitive nurturing, they were going to go to dad. Cause I would be like, are you on fire? Cause if you're not on fire, (laughs) And that's not, I mean, I'm not going to, I won't apologize for that. That is a part. I'm not the quote unquote, typical nurturing stereotype of motherhood. And that's okay. Like in our family, it's all worked out. My husband gets to really exercise that beautiful muscle. And I don't have to feel badly about the fact that it's not one that I possess. Yes. Yes. And I love how you, you just, you know, it calls us back to the idea of we are all both heroes and heroines, even mm-hmm. if we very much identify with one specific gender. Yes. That we're all going to be called to go on different journeys at different times. Sometimes we choose to walk out that door and sometimes mm-hmm. the house gets burned down around us <laughs> and there is no more door right. to stand by. Yeah. The way to success, to happiness, to just the secret of being human yeah. is that sense of, yes, I can and will embrace the both and also-ness that's Mm -hmm. always been part of being human. It's just here we are now with much more 
descriptive and clear pronouns that mm-hmm. are in some ways, yes, very much a way to revolutionize the conversation and mm-hmm. don't have anything to do with the conversation around mm-hmm. how to be hero and heroine, masculine, feminine, that whole entire cauldron of aliveness mm-hmm. that we're really mm-hmm. called to be in. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And I just want to appreciate, you know, the conversation we're having here too, that it reminds me of like, right, this is why we still do go back to the old stories because it enables us to have a very new conversation about what parts of the old story Mm -hmm. very much still resonate and still empower and what parts make us say, huh, do I agree or disagree? Should I rewrite that or not? But there's that consciousness in saying, this was what was there before. This is what informed Celtic culture from 1500 years ago, but this is what informed culture from 15 years ago Mm -hmm. and 45 years ago. An awareness of the fullness of that experience is what lets us start to reconstruct and review the present so we can build a future that we can all really be included in. And, and, you know, it's, I think, again, going back to the personal, I have taken it upon myself to go back through, I have 200 plus blog articles. Mm -hmm. I'm going back from the beginning and I'm just changing the wording to be more inclusive. I'm not changing the content. The content doesn't need to be changed. The content is applicable to all people, but the wording could make some people feel like I'm not a part of this, or I, I can't see myself in this. And so, I mean, and it's ongoing thing because that's a lot of, that's a lot of words and it's a lot of articles. So uh, it's slow going. If somebody were to Mm -hmm. jump on right now, they might find one that's really still she, 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 mother, 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 he, 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 father, father, father. But I'm I'm getting there because I I am recognizing and realizing it's the bringing everyone into the story again, regardless of the labels, because the labels they mean a lot and they also mean nothing. It's just like what mm-hmm. you were saying; like it is, it, they do mean a lot and they also mean nothing at the same time. And so finding that or striking that balance between the words that we're using and how we're how we are claiming them for ourselves, I think is the, is the most important part. Cause I definitely identify, I mean, my pronouns are she, her identify as a mother and really identify with my own definition of motherhood, I guess is what I'm trying to say too. Cause it doesn't necessarily fit the society's definition of motherhood. Yeah. Well, thank you for that labor of love in order to truly stand in your integrity and just recognizing that alignment of of your message matters and not just for you, but in the sense of you write for others, you write to heal, you write to call people in and help them feel seen and valued. And that's just a beautiful thing, I think, to, to end with today, just mm-hmm. that with that teaching of, yes, it's possible to go back and review and shift, and that's part of growth and moving forward. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, Mm. you're welcome. Barb, thank you so much for sharing so much of yourself and your beautifully unique insights Mm. into the story of Maha and just also into this really miracle of birth, the mystery of what it is to to be here and bring humans into the world and what it is to be human. Could you tell people a little bit more about how to find you and your podcast and your writing? And Sure. I joke about how bbsuarez.com, Barb Buckner Suarez, bbsuarez.com is my stage name. (laughs) So you could find me there. That's my website. 
I'm pretty active on Instagram at B. Buckner Suarez. And my podcasts can be found pretty much on all the major players. But if you wanted to go straight to birthhappens.com, you could uh, subscribe and then get into all of those episodes. I'm batching them by season. So this first season is all about intimacy with yourself and with your partner and with your baby. And I have been loving being able to connect with people in this way. It's been, it's been fantastic. Yeah. Oh, well, Barb, uh, thank you so much. I so recommend your work. I wish I had known you when I was <laughs> in the birthing mama stage, but I can tell you that being around you helps me recognize how we're constantly in a state of birth and that mm. I think that those of us who are connected in relationships now and in the future, we're going to keep needing to have birthing stories told to us so we can show up it. for those we love. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's been awesome to be here and have this conversation with you. Thank you for doing the work that you're doing because it's pretty cool. I love it. <laughs> thank you. Quick question for you before we say goodbye today. Do you have stories within that are yearning to come through? I want to tell you about the Sovereign Writers Knot. It's my online writing community for creatives, healers, seekers, and dreamers. In this online writing group, we gather together to explore our stories. You don't have to come with any specific agenda. You only have to come with a willingness to meet yourself on the page and a desire to create community with other writers who are on a quest to do the same. You can learn more over my website, marisagowdy.com slash sovereign dash writers. Thank you for tuning in to the Not Work podcast. Please subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform and do share this episode with other lovers of myth and story. By the way, everyone is a lover of myth and story, even if they've forgotten. You can find out more about my writing, my book, and how to work with me as a writing coach and story healer, as well as my online writing community and courses at marisagowdy.com. Follow the show on Instagram at notworkpodcast and join our listeners group over on Facebook. Music on the show is by the wonderful Beth Sweeney and Billy Hardy a Celtic fiddle and multi-instrumental duo based on Cape Cod, Massachusetts. The traditional Irish reel we play at the start of the show is called The College Groves. Find out about their music and shows at billyandbeth.com. Gratefully, I live, write, work, and record this podcast on the ancestral lands of the Muncie Lenape tribe, whose name means original people. Remember, Ancient stories are medicine for our modern maladies, and your stories can help heal the past, anchor us into the present, and create a more beautiful, sustainable future.